Good morning. morning. Be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be focusing in on verses 24 through 27 this morning. Um, The church has changed the world for the better. Amen? And you know what's better than that? It's just getting started. It's not done. Matthew 13, 31 through 32, Jesus had said that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and he sowed in his field. And though it's the smallest of the other seeds, when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The kingdom would start small, but it would end up with supernatural results. Being not just a garden plant like a mustard seed is, but the largest tree. Supernatural results. We're right in the middle of two bookend texts explaining the mechanism for this worldwide change. Uh, The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Bookend one is in Jesus' response to Peter's great commission in 16, 18 through 19. Look Look at that with me. Where he told Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be what has been loosed in heaven. That the the church would usher in the kingdom by teaching people the very ways of God, and it would transform culture. And bookend two is in the section on church discipline in chapter 18, 15 through 18. Where if your brother sins, you go to him and you show him your fault. You say, are we to meddle in one another's lives? Yeah, if he sins, we go and we show him his fault. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, you take two more with you. So that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word might be confirmed. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a tax collector and a Gentile. That's the keys to the kingdom. He's out of the community of faith. Truly I tell you that whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's that mechanism of determining right and wrong according to the word of God, binding and loosing according to what God's word says that, that causes this mustard seed of faith to grow and to change the whole world. We don't see many churches doing that today, do we? Is it any wonder the church is impotent and it's not changing the world? We've forgotten our commission to disciple the nations. We're not doing that. So everything within these bookends, 16, 18 through 19, and 18, 15 through 18, uh, it, it's within this textual sandwich is intended to be interpreted together. And that's why I've regularly reached back to Peter's confession and Jesus' response to it in every sermon since. There is a logical connectedness to the flow of thought. And that logical connectedness is, uh, is transformation with patience. Transformation with patience. Our title this morning for our sermon will be Patiently Enduring Evil While You Oppose It. And that's what we need to be doing as the people of God. How do we see this transformation of patience throughout this whole sandwich up to this point? Well, in 16 through 18, Jesus told Peter the gates of hell would have no chance against the church and that we're going to change the world, right? And, but then right after that, 16, 20 through 27, he says, don't tell anybody I'm, I'm the Christ yet. 
I have to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. In 22, Peter says, that's not going to happen, Lord. But Jesus puts Peter in his place correcting him, even calling him Satan. And in 24 through 27, he, ex he explains, he expands on the reality of this delay, that their path to bearing the keys of the kingdom would be one through great difficulty, that they had to take up their cross and follow Jesus through suffering to get to this glory. And then in 28, 17 through 3, we're back to transformation. Truly, I say to you though, some will die in this path, but there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into His kingdom. And then what do we see in 17, 1 through 3? Jesus sees a vision of that kingdom. I mean, uh, we see a vision of that kingdom glory. Peter, James, and John get to witness it in the transfiguration. That this transformation is anticipated. Jesus is transfigured before them with Moses and Elijah. Everything that Moses and Elijah had worked toward and hoped for would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But what do we see right after that again? Yes. We just saw transformation. Now what do we see? Patience. Peter wanted to build the tabernacles in 17.4, which related to the expectation of Elijah coming before the Messiah and all the Jews hearing his call to repentance this time and God renewing his covenant with the Jews and the Messiah leading them in victory over all of their enemies that they were going to just defeat Rome. The Jews would be the world power. But no, right? That while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This, Jesus, is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then Moses and Elijah vanish. And they're walking back down the mountain. And Jesus says, Tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man's risen from the dead. There's not going to be any covenant renewal. There's not going to be this massive repentance. I'm going to die. No, Elijah's not coming to prepare the way for me, not in the way you're thinking. My death is coming. There's a delay before this kingdom comes, and I'm going to be, my death's part of that delay. And they ask for clarification in 17.10. Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus clarifies by informing them that the prophecy of Elijah was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Not a literal Elijah, who they refused to hear. And, they, and he even blames them for John the Baptist's death. There will be no covenant renewal. Like he already told them twice already, the Son of Man himself would suffer at the hands of these Jews before the kingdom would begin and begin to expand throughout the world through the church, through the church utilizing these keys. And then we see transformation again. You see this theme. Transformation again in 17, 14 through 20. Jesus again shows his kingdom authority by casting out an obstinate demon out of a young boy. In verse 17, he expresses his exasperation at the disciples' inability to cast it out by saying, How long will I be with you? Another allusion to his coming death. But then he assures them that although their faith was too small at that time, their mustard seed faith would grow. They would be able to do the unthinkable. Their mustard seed faith was mountain-moving faith and nothing would be impossible for them. Right back to the transformation that would be taking place. You see this? Back, 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 back. Transformation, patience. Transformation, patience. It's not quick. Transformation, patience. Then again, 17, 20 through 23, we see the patience. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day, and they were deeply grieved. So that, that brings us to our text today, where we see one of these mountain-sized injustices that's going to be fixed through the church over time. 
And it's a surprising thing that you don't hear preached about very often, but it's in the Bible, and it's unjust taxation. How many sermons do you ever hear on taxation? You know what we do at Maynardville Fellowship? We take the next verse up. And if it talks about taxation, you know what we're going to talk about when we preach? We're going to talk about taxation. So that's going to be a theme of our sermon today from Matthew 17, 24 through 27. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And when Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take it and give it to them for you and for me. Today we're going to look at Peter's conformity. We're going to look at Jesus' courage. We're going to look at Jesus' conformity. And then Jesus' confidence. So that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to begin here with Peter's conformity in 24 and 25. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, Yes. Capernaum was Jesus and the disciples' base of operations. Peter lived in Capernaum and they operated out of his home. Peter was... Uh, people were constantly trying to find fault with Jesus. We've seen that throughout the book of Matthew, haven't we? They fought him for uh, saying that he forgave the sins of the paralytic man that he, held, that he healed, all the way back in chapter 9, 1 through 6. They fought him for associating with tax collectors and sinners in 11 through 13. They fought him because his disciples didn't fast. In chapter 9, verse 14, they fought him because his disciples plucked heads of grain on the Sabbath in 12, 1 through 7. They fought him because he healed somebody on the Sabbath in chapter 12, 9 through 14. And even because his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate in 5, 1 through 2. You talk about nitpicking somebody, they're trying to find fault with Jesus all the time, aren't they? Well, here they go again. This is not a friendly question. They are attempting to find fault with Jesus in a place that they think that it might be able to be found. In Jesus' attitude toward the controversial two drachma tax. The, this, this time, they're not, they're not going straight to Jesus. A lot of times you notice they don't go to Jesus with their complaints. They go to his disciples and they complain about Jesus. Probably because they were scaled, right? A little bit scaled. But this time it's at least somewhat understandable because they are in Peter's house. Notice they call Jesus your teacher. Does your teacher, Peter's teacher, not pay the tax? Despite the fact that Jesus has done more miracles in Capernaum than arguably anywhere else, according to Matthew eleven twenty, they still wouldn't own him as their teacher. They still your teacher. And... Or as they should have. Of course they didn't know him as the Messiah, did they? But what is this two drachma tax? Well, it was a temple tax. It was a relatively recently resurrected 
annual levy on adult Jewish males. I say relatively recent because it seems likely that it was added to the Pharisaical list of obligations in the tradition of the elders somewhere around 20 B.C., which would have been 50 years before, right? So 50 years, you say, well, that's pretty old. Well, in history, that's really not. That's something that would be kind of young, right? So it's relatively new. When Herod the Great proposed a renovation facelift of the temple, they wanted funds, and the funds they got through reinstituting this old tax that they found justification for by citing the Scriptures. Herod the Great wanted to give the temple a facelift and make it beautiful. It took money to do that. So the Pharisees think, okay, where can we justify adding a tax requirement to the people so that the funds are there? Or at least they did look to the Scriptures and try to make a case. Right? They looked first to Exodus 30, 12-14, which mentions a census tax, not an annual tax, A census tax. Every time that there was a census, or at least the first time there was a census, after the the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they they were going to count and number the people, and they were to pay this tax. This tax was paid, it says, as a ransom to God for saving their lives from Egypt. Exodus 20, uh, 30, verse 12. Verse 15 goes even farther and says, The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. The Old Covenant had familiar, the familiar blood offerings that we, we know about, right, that we think about. It, it also had grain offerings, but it had this offering that looked forward to what we have in the New Covenant, that... that this atoning, atonement was pointed to not only in blood offerings and grain offerings, but even through a, this census tax prefigured the payment that would be made for them later. Peter looks back to that. I mean, do we need that now? Do we offer money for our atonement now? It was only a shadow of something that would be done away with. Peter quotes in 1 Peter 1.18, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. Don't you love the new covenant a lot more than the old one? You weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This tax wasn't too heavy. A half shekel tax would have been about two days' wages. Think, based off of the average salary in the United States, to give us just some sort of idea, think 400 bucks. A $400 temple tax. The shekel was not the money used in Jesus' day, but a day's wage at that time was paid in a silver Greek coin named called the drachma. So two drachma, the double drachma, would have been equivalent to a, the half shekel requirement of Exodus. But here in this old covenant temple, the Pharisees instituted a scripturally dubious annual tax based off of this census tax from the time of the pre-tribulation tabernacle. They also cited 2 Kings 12, 5-12, where the priests collected funds for temple repairs and a voluntary annual contribution mentioned in Nehemiah 10, 32, where it says, We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Is there a correlation between a voluntary obligation you place on yourself and a census tax from Exodus 30? 
and one of them's a half shekel and the other's a third of a shekel, they're making a connection that isn't there. You know every time somebody does exegesis, they ain't doing it right? Well, the Pharisees weren't. They weren't doing it right. But they're making a case from the Scriptures, a bad one, but they're making a case that, hey, yeah, 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 every year we've got to pay this shekel tax, this, this half shekel tax. The tax was collected locally and then sent, uh, then they sent the money to Jerusalem. The collection period was about a month leading up to the Passover. The tax was used to provide offerings in the temple on behalf of the whole people. But it also gave the well-positioned scribes and Pharisees an opportunity to enrich themselves. One of the reasons for the... uh, uh, I'm sorry, to enrich themselves. Because to pay the temple tax, they... They had to exchange their native currency for local currency. So they had money changers placed in the temple. And when you changed yours over from the currency you used where you were to the local Jewish currency, or the the currency used in Jerusalem, they would charge an exchange fee. Jesus ends up throwing over some tables over that a little bit later in chapter 21, doesn't he? Jesus did have a problem with the way that they were manipulating the system. The Pharisees got to look righteous for pushing these taxes while at the same time gaining wealth by the existence of the tax. It reminds you of the climate change preachers today in our current government and their inside trading, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it does. There's nothing new under the sun. We've always got government corruption. I'm going to tell you something. We're supposed to speak against individual corruption and we have to be bold enough to speak against government corruption as well. Amen. Absolutely. But not only now we understand what the tax was, but what was the attitude toward the tax? Well, not everybody agreed that such an annual tax was mandated by the law because, you know, they could read and stuff. So so they understood that this isn't really what the Bible's teaching. But for the nationalistic conservative Pharisees, this tax was a no-brainer. They argued against the validity of the Roman taxes. That's a debate we'll see them try to drag Jesus into in chapter 22. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They didn't even believe you should or at least debated it, but they wanted to trap Jesus in it to find fault with him again. But they, they insisted that this tax was the patriotic duty of all good Jews. The Sadducees disapproved of it as a relatively recent Pharisaic institution. Pharisees and Sadducees didn't get along, did they? And the members of the Qumran community, they said they would only pay it one time in their lifetime on principle. They reasoned, you can tax me when you count me, but I ain't letting you count me every year. You can count me once. The priests considered themselves exempt. Some Jews were simply lax. They were just nominal Jews, so they just tried tried to avoid it. They'd kind of hide behind a tree when the tax collectors were around and hope that nobody saw them and they could kind of get away with it. They didn't keep great records all the time anyway, so a lot of times you did. Just kind of got away with it. So the the task of extracting it from many in the population depended on reminders and at least subtle social pressure. So not everyone paid the tax, and the repercussions for not paying it, they were not legal but social. You didn't go to jail or anything. You weren't necessarily fined, but people who failed to observe this tax were looked down on as lesser than and sort of shamed in the synagogue community. The the Capernaum temple tax collectors had good reason to think that Jesus might reject this tax, which would further excuse their disdain for him and give them fuel to poison public perception of Jesus. And that's what they wanted to do anyway. He don't even pay the temple tax. Don't listen to him. 
He casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul. This proves it. He won't pay the temple tax. He hates the temple. That's where God dwells. Can't trust this teacher. Don't, don't let those miraculous powers fool you. Well, they had reason to believe that he wouldn't pay because Jesus departed from the tradition of the elders regularly, as we've seen already. He touched a leper. You didn't do that. He offered to go to a Gentile's house. You didn't do that. He touched a woman who had a fever. You didn't do that. He touched a woman who had an issue of blood. You didn't do that. He touched a dead girl. You didn't do that. He didn't observe their weekly fasts. You, you had to do that. He violated their understanding of the Sabbath. He, the list goes on and on. And they're thinking, well, here's another thing we can catch him in. And we've already seen a hint of Jesus' radical attitude toward the temple. Remember in chapter, in chapter 12, verse 6, when he said, I say to you, speaking of himself, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus had a problem with the exploitation of the people by means of the temple tax. That's why he threw over the money table changers in the temple and ran them out with whips in chapter 21, 12 through 17. It's possible, if not likely, that Jesus had called this practice out publicly on multiple occasions before he cleansed the temple. So people knew he's got a problem with the money changers. He's probably got a problem with the tax. He'll speak against it. He might not even pay it. By this time, it's likely that Jesus is already gaining a reputation of a temple despiser. Ultimately, uh, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple itself in chapter 23. And his negative attitude toward the temple is even front and center in the accusations that are brought against Jesus that led to his crucifixion in his trials, right? So that's, that's why they're thinking that we might have him right here. Well, Peter assumes the righteousness of what he knows, though. So when they ask Peter, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He pays it, doesn't he? Well, Peter said yes. Yeah, he does. Peter doesn't hesitate for a moment because, well, this is right and good. I've always thought it's right and good. It's been around forever. For him, 50 years was forever. It's kind of the way we are. His whole life, it had been that way. So since it's all he had ever known, well, any righteous person actually pays this, and we think what we know is righteous, don't we? Even when often it's unbiblical. It's became a tradition that we've accepted, and it's not actually righteous. He might have remembered what Jesus said regarding the law of God. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. But if you read the Bible and you believe the Bible is right about what it says, but you interpret it wrong, you're still wrong. Just believing in the inerrancy of Scripture, if you misinterpret it, doesn't do you very much good. So yeah, the law hadn't changed, but this was not actually a legal requirement. was the thing. Peter wasn't ready to have the keys to the kingdom. He's wrong again and again. Ever since Jesus told him, you are Peter and upon this rock I build my church and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, ever since that, notice, Peter has been shown since that, in this sandwich that we have, in these bookends, he's been wrong three times. Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified. Not so, Lord. This will never happen to you. Shut up, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Right? Your, your mind's on the things of God, not the things of men. The transfiguration. We should build three tabernacles. One for you, Jesus, and one for Elijah, and one for Moses. And God thunders out of the heavens in a big cloud and says, This is my beloved Son. Don't make him on equal ground with Moses and Elijah. Hear him. There's no covenant renewal here. And he's on the ground ashamed and afraid. You'd think he would stop speaking out about what he thought he knew without checking with Jesus first. But he still speaks out about what he thinks he knows without checking with Jesus first, doesn't he? 
So, how many times have you thought you knew something was right and then found out later that it was wrong? How skeptical should we be about the many things we think we know? How many times have you been, have you condemned something as wrong only to find out later that the people you were condemning as wrong were actually right and you were wrong to even condemn them? Am I the only one that's ever done that? Yeah. In our pride, we have a tendency to think that, we, that what we have always known or what we have always heard is right. We have to remember that just because something is, it doesn't make it right. Just because it's the way we were raised, it doesn't make it right. A lot of times we'll say things like, I was raised that way and I turned out just fine. You didn't turn out near as good as you think you did. I know you. Right? Just because it's all we've ever known or all we've ever seen function doesn't make it right and doesn't mean it's the only way that things can function. We have to get that through our heads as Christians. I mentioned that this temple tax was a relatively new annual tax. But relatively new, as we've said, is from 50 years before. So it's all Peter's ever known. To Peter, this new innovation was the old-time way. We have to realize how small we are if we ever want to grow. We have to realize how little we know if we ever want to learn. We have to realize how sinful we are if we ever want to be holy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn over what's still lacking in them, for they will be comforted. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, because they know they don't have it yet, but they will be filled with it. How many things do you assume are right because it's all you've ever seen modeled or at least at least it's questionable, if not unbiblical, the things that actually turn out to be? Let's think about unbiblical taxation itself. Guys, I'm going to challenge you here and if you think I'm wrong, that's okay. I'm going to challenge you on some things here and you're going to be like, whoa, Matt's a complete radical. You're right, guys. I'm totally awesome. Completely radical. Right? Uh, the, the, we want to say, what does the Bible teach? And when we hear something that, man, I've not thought that way before, we don't just throw it out immediately when we hear it. We say, is that really what the, teach, what the Scriptures teach? And then what does the church do? It gets together and it says, well, if, do the Scriptures actually teach what this madman's saying? Well, if so, then we bind what was bound in heaven. If not, we loose what was loosed in heaven. The church gets together and they think just because what is, is doesn't mean it's what all. And we're going to think and we're going to push in a vision for culture that's actually what the Bible says. Even if it's not what we've always thought and it smacks our modern sensibilities. What's the Bible tell us about unbiblical taxation? Well, it does exist. Most taxes we're accustomed to are completely unbiblical. Property tax is unbiblical. Do you know that? It's a denial of property rights. It's basically saying the state really owns your property, even if you own no lien against it. And if you don't pay them a tax, they'll take your property away from you. They're just giving you the right to use it. The inheritance tax is completely unbiblical. It's an assault on the family itself to be able to hand something down that a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children and his children's children. They want to snatch it away from you and give it to the public good, whatever that means. I've seen what they think the public good is, guys. It ain't good. And income tax is completely unbiblical. Especially a graduated income tax. Such is never prescribed in the Bible. And it, it punishes people for being productive. It's against the nature of God to punish good and to reward evil. To punish people for being productive encourages people to be less productive. 
That's not in line with the nature of God. That's why He never taxes that way. And I know what you're thinking. Here's some related issues. How would we pay for our prisons? Newsflash! Prisons are unbiblical! In the Bible, there were capital crimes. So some people committed these crimes and they were executed. Non-capital crimes, if you did something that cost somebody else money, you had to pay back what you had cost them, plus between two and five times restitution, depending on the nature of the crime, to their victims, according to Exodus 22. If the thief was unable to pay the required restitution, he became an indentured servant until he worked off his debt. Exodus 22.3 If he refused to pay restitution because he didn't want to, his contempt of court was a capital crime for which he was put to death. Unless the thief had a death wish, he paid restitution. The person who did the wrong had to pay for the wrong he did. Now he does wrong, the person that he wrongs doesn't get any restitution, and we put him in jail and pay the person and, and take the money from the person he did wrong in taxes to keep him up in his room and board in the prison. That just don't make no sense, does it? No, but it's what we do. Do you know the United States has 4% of the world population, around 4.3, but it has 20% of the world's prisoners? There's something wrong. Our prison system's wicked and broken. God's law, though, it would fix all that. It would cause the wicked to fear and that evil would no longer be named among you, it says over and over again in the Old Testament. But in our prison system, no, no, no. We don't do that. So we spend $80 billion in the U.S. in prisons per year and an extra $100 billion on other subsequent costs. You say, but $100 billion is more than the $80 billion we send on the prisons. Yeah, when you put dad in prison, you then have to subsidize mom and the kids because dad's in prison and can't earn a living. So we have to put them on the government checks. Huh. Oh, okay, well, okay. I, I, maybe I'll give you prisons. We'll have to return to that. But how would we pay for the public schools? Again, guys, you're assuming the righteousness of what you know. Education is not the role of government. Search the Scriptures. It's not. As for the United States Department of Education, it's been, it has about the same historicity as the temple tax did when Peter assumed Jesus would agree with it. It wasn't even founded until 1979. What would we do without the Department of Education? Exactly what we did before it existed in 1979. And have things got better or worse since then? Look around. We got the most ignorant generation of people you've ever seen. It's insane. The Department of Education is 43 years old. The temple tax was about 50 years old. Both, we just assume, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. Both were unbiblical. Education is the role of parents. That's what the Bible says. These words I command you, that they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons as you talk with them, as you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. It was almost like the Bible actually expects you to be present in the life of your children and to raise them and teach them yourself. But I don't want to. Then repent. Well, a lot of people don't want to support their kids either. Should they have to? Because the Bible says it's their job and duty to support their children financially. Yeah, it's your job to support them educationally too. If you don't want to, repent. It's pretty simple. Turn the hearts of the children toward the fathers and the hearts of the fathers toward their children lest I come and strike you with a curse. I'm meddling today, aren't I? 
whoever educates your kids is discipling your kids. If you allow Caesar to educate your children, don't be surprised when they turn out to be Romans. Total expenditures for public schools and secondary schools in the United States in 2020 was $870 billion. It blows the prison system expense completely out the water. We're over a trillion in two unbiblical things that aren't even the role of government. Every year on promissory notes that are backed by nothing but the faith and the dollars losing value and faith on the worldwide scale every year because we're promising based on nothing except for our children's future. This amounts to an average... This is what the government does. $17,013 per pupil in public school. I educate all six of mine for way less than that. I couldn't afford to educate them if I spent $17,000 a kid. Well, you think maybe that the government can't afford either because nobody, we can't do that, that it's impossible? And no wonder they want to keep you from having kids. want to sterilize you and encourage you to have 1.5 instead of 6.8. Right? But some people won't. Soapbox over. Let's turn now from Jesus's, I mean from Peter's, from Peter's conformity to Jesus' courage in 25 and 26. And when he came into the house, Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to Peter first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. Let's begin first by looking at at Jesus' readiness and his initiative. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke first. Let's consider the readiness. This text is emphasizing Jesus' uncanny capacity to know what's going on in the world around him. Ignorance is bliss. Have you ever heard that? Well, it is until it destroys you. Jesus understood the possible run-ins that he might have. He knew it was time for the temple collection. He knew he hadn't paid it. He knew that they wanted to find fault. He knew they would likely go to Peter with their concern. He knew what he thought about the issue because he actually thought about the issue and studied what God's law says. Hosea 4.6 My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because they have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Guys, we can't just study John 3.16. We have to know what God's Word says on everything. How else are we going to righteously bind and loose and form culture? It's impossible. Jesus knew what He thought about everything. Not only... Did he do, was he ready? But he took initiative. Notice in verse 25, Jesus spoke first. He wanted Peter to know that he anticipated what was going to happen. When you are discipling people, you don't need to be reactionary. A good disciple maker doesn't just answer questions when they're brought to him. He adds credence to his trustworthiness by anticipating the questions that the day will insist upon. This is a current event. This is what's going on in the world around us. I need to give you an answer before you're asking the question. Robert Louis Dabney, Francis Schaeffer, R.J. Rushdooney. If you don't know those names, you need to. Old godly men of old who understood the times and knew what they ought to do and wrote of the consequences of the cultural ideas of that day and told you this is what will be happening 50, 60, 100, 150 years later. And they are... It's prophetic in what they saw coming. I don't use prophetic as if they actually heard from God, but they understood the times 
and knew the consequences of ideas. The truth is that we must be modern day sons of Issachar. 1 Chronicles 12, 32 praises the sons of Issachar who are men who understood the times with the knowledge of what Israel should do. You can't just know what the Bible says. You have to understand the cultural trends and apply the Bible to what's going on in the real world. We can't just say, I don't want my property tax raised and the will tax. We have to be able to say, why are we building a huge multi-million dollar school and a justice center with our will tax money and our property tax money when those aren't even biblical roles of government? We've got to have the whole population actually understanding that. But the churches aren't preaching anything except for you've got to get saved if you want to go to heaven. Therefore, we don't change culture at all. And we get drugged down. And since we've forgotten the law of our God, He's forgetting our children, and the, the whole culture is becoming less and less godly, generation after generation after generation. All we have to do is stand up, return to the Lord our God, and enter back into the covenantal blessings instead of the covenantal curses that are promised when we forget His law. That's all we have to do. So we not only see Jesus' readiness and His initiative, we see His reputation. He says in verse 25, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect custom or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. Asking questions to get to answers. That's the first thing I want to point to. Jesus knew what Peter thought about the temple tax. Notice, Jesus doesn't tell Peter what to think. He asks a question, What do you think? It is an invitation to think deeply about something that Peter had taken for granted. Guys, we must be encouraging our brothers and sisters to think deeply about things they take for granted. Amen. That's what I'm trying to do this morning. You say, I don't agree with half of what you said. Think deeply about it. Study the Scriptures about it. Let's together sit down, Bibles in hand, and say, what does God's Word say? What does God's Word say? And if it actually is as I say it is, we should stand on it regardless of our modern sensibilities. Can I at least get an amen for that? Absolutely. Jesus' words are parable-like. Jesus doesn't refute the temple tax based on it being an annual tax rather than a census tax, though. It's not what He does. That's what the Sadducees did. That's what the Qumran community did. That's what almost all the other objectors, they objected on those grounds. Jesus goes to their relationship with God. Jesus' argument is by analogy with the taxation policy of the kings of this earth. Customs is a general term for indirect taxation through customs and duties, while the poll tax referred specifically to Roman poll taxes levied against the subjects of an area that was under direct Roman rule. So you're not Roman citizens, but you're under Roman rule. All rulers, it is taken, need to raise revenue. The question is, from whom do they raise it? The specific reference of sons or strangers here. The kings are not going to tax their own family members. Right? They would care for their own family with the proceeds they got from the strangers. That's what he's saying. The point here is that Jesus and those who believe on Him are the true sons of the kingdom, not the enemies who are out there trying to find fault with Jesus for not paying the temple tax. We're the true sons of the kingdom. They aren't. 
The very people that are trying to collect from me and aren't believing on me, they're not sons of the kingdom and we are sons of the kingdom. Isn't that what it says in John 1, 11 through 13? He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God, even those who believe on his name, who were born not of the blood nor of the will of flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. These people are Jews, but they're not God's people. We truly are God's people. We're his sons. We don't owe this. They can keep up their temple. Jesus' disciples are ushering in the kingdom as the sons of God. Remember what he says in Matthew 6, 9 through 10 when he's teaching them to pray. Pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven. Nobody prayed that way prior to Jesus. Hardly at all. You don't see that. But Jesus taught them, pray, our Father. There's a change in relationships in the new covenant. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever you've bound on earth, let it be bound in heaven. Whatever you've loosed on earth, let it be loosed in heaven. The ones who are going to do this, binding and loosing, are the true sons of God, not Israel, who are binding and loosing wrongly in their synagogues, the church, the true sons of the kingdom, the true sons of God. Jesus knows that the temple itself is a shadow, and He's the fulfillment. It will be destroyed. He and His people will remain. Jesus knows that the temple tax is a shadow of the atonement, according to Exodus 30, verse 15. And that shadow will pass away. But His atoning work would remain providing for all of those in His kingdom. I'm the king of this kingdom and I'm providing for all you. I don't need your tax money for this brick and mortar kingdom, temple. We're the true temple and I'm making you into a temple for the living God. Wow, it's big theologically, isn't it, when you look at it that way? There's no need for an atonement tax to provide for the temple. Jesus will be the atonement to provide for the sons of the kingdom. The whole system simply pointed to Him. And they want Him and His sons, the sons of the kingdom, to pay a tax for a soon-to-be obsolete temple. Hebrews 8, 13-9 says it well. When he set a new covenant, he has made the first covenant obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and an earthly sanctuary. But the new covenant, it doesn't have that. And it wasn't long after Hebrews was written until there was no temple anymore to give tribute to anyway. It was all going to be gone. That's why after the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah vanished and you saw no one but Jesus himself alone. Jesus had the courage to speak against this system that was worshipped by the masses, but that was destined to be replaced by something better. Thomas Jefferson said this, he said, Mankind are more disposed to suffer with evils that are sufferable than to right them themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. We'll suffer under things that are wrong as long as we're entertained and fed. Well, I know this is wrong, but I'm not going to make waves. Why? Because I'm entertained and I'm fed. Jesus would speak out against the injustices of his day because he spoke what was right. We're not to be full-time conservatives. Sometimes we're to be progressives. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, we're to conserve what is good in society. Conserve, you conserve what already is. I want to conserve the good that's in society. But I want to make progress from what's bad. And guys, look around. There's a lot bad out there. We've never got it perfect. 
We're not just the church reformed and ever reforming. We have to think bigger. We're the world reformed and ever reforming. What's the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me in the church. Go therefore and make... No, 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 no. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of the church members. No, of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them that if they don't get saved, that they're going to go to hell. No, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded. Our Great Commission's too small. It's not great anymore. Our vision is too small. We're a bunch of Gnostics trying to treasure our soul and letting the world go to hell. God, that's Satan's domain. No, it's not. It was purchased back. It's not his domain. Jesus paid it all and he redeemed the whole world. His whole cosmos is being recreated by this redeemed church. We've got to get that back. problem is a lot of theological liberals started preaching a social gospel wanting to change the world and a lot of conservatives responded to that they reacted and said hey they're leaving out the salvation of the soul and they preached only the salvation of the soul which one is is God actually concerned with the soul and because we're new people changing the world it's not either or it's both and we've got to have a fully orbed gospel and it's enough to save the body and the soul, isn't it? It's enough to alleviate human suffering of the oppressed and the downtrodden and take you to heaven when you die. It's enough for both. Do we have the courage to speak against what is contrary to God's Word today? In every area, even things we think are impossible to change, have we forgotten that nothing will be impossible for us? If we have even the faith of a grain of mustard seed, that's in our text right before this one, isn't it? There is a biblical view of government and taxation. Unfortunately, today's churches almost never teach about the biblical view of the state. Seminaries, even reformed seminaries, fail to instruct their graduates about the biblical role of civil government. So most pastors have no idea what the scriptures teach about civil government or economics, and they pass their ignorance on to their congregations. Making the problem worse are state-chartered corporate churches, 501c3 churches. They absolutely won't speak out on so-called political issues. Why? Because they might lose their tax-exempt status. Why? Because they're a creation of the state instead of the creation of the living God. God forbid... Search churches, churches have been effectively emasculated from performing some of their most important roles in society because of fear that this, because they fear the state more than they fear God. It's a shame when Oliver Anthony speaks against unjust taxation more than any so-called evangelical leader today. Y'all know who he is, don't you? He went what it's called viral over the last little bit. We too should speak against the injustice of the obese milking welfare. Because if you're five foot three and 300 pounds, then taxes ought not pay for your bag of fudge rounds. I can give Oliver Anthony an amen on that. And I can say, where are you, pastors? You with their tail between your legs like a bunch of cowards. Whatever Christ has whispered in her ear, we're supposed to shout it from the mountaintops. Whatever we're shown in the light in the darkness, we're supposed to bring it into the light. Oh, not if it might cost me a few dollars 
or tax-exempt status granted by the state. What do I need from the state? I have all authority given to me in heaven and earth from Jesus Christ. I don't care what the state gives me. Where are we at? When something is wrong, we must say so. Do you think our tax dollars will always go to fund the murder of unborn babies? My mustard seed faith can move that mountain. Do you think that our tax dollars will always go to so-called gender-affirming care? Huh, no. My mustard seed faith is enough to move that mountain. Do you think our tax dollars will all be stolen from us and given to fight wars that we ought know absolutely nothing about? No, my mustard seed faith is enough to move that mountain. Do you think that we'll always pay tax on property that we supposedly own? Do you think that tax dollars will be used to educate children into secular humanism, thus violating the establishment clause of the First Amendment and taking upon itself the duty and responsibility that God's Word says belongs to parents and parents alone? My mustard seed faith is enough to move that mountain. Say, man, you got a lot of faith. No, I've got mustard seed faith. It's enough, though. I'll speak against it anyway, and I'll win. Because God's Word is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. We can't lose! Why have we forgotten that? Why have we forgotten that? We're more powerful than the greatest kings on this earth because we worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He has victory over them all already. Why have we forgotten our birthright as sons of the kingdom? If we have faith as a grain of mustard seed, we can move mountains of tradition. If we have faith as a grain of mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for us. We have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever we bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth will be what was loosed in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray boldly that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, just have to wait to heaven. It's always going to be a train wreck down here. No. Pray that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven and believe, God, that whatever we ask, it will be done for us because we believe. His will is revealed in His law. Guys, it's going to take a while. But we win down here. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. But now we get a little surprise. Jesus is conformity. I got y'all ready to charge hell with a water pistol now, right? But look at verse 27. However, even though this is true, we don't owe it. And I'm going to speak against it. However, so that we don't offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Do we see an inconsistency here so that we not offend them? I'm going to tell you this. We know from the rest of the book of Matthew up to this point, Jesus doesn't care too much about offending people, does He? Remember in chapter 15 when He calls them blind guides of the blind and He tells them that their eyes won't see and their ears won't hear, that Isaiah prophesied about their obstinance and then the disciples came to Him and said, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended? Same word is used here. So that we're not an offense to them, it's scandal on. We won't become a scandal to them. They were offended when they heard this statement, but he said, every plant that my heavenly Father did not plant is uprooted. Let them alone. So what if they're offended? They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, they'll both fall in the pit. Jesus offended people all the time. He touched people the tradition said he shouldn't touch, spent time with people that said that he should avoid, and did things on the Sabbath that, the, that they thought he shouldn't do. So why does he care this time? I think R.T. France gets it right. 
Jesus' difficulty in, specific situa- in this specific situation will have been, however, that to refuse to pay the, te- the tax himself or to encourage his disciples not to would send an unintended public message of disapproval of the temple. The unfolding of the story allows for the point to be made quietly without this misunderstanding. People would misunderstand the action and he didn't want it to make he didn't want people to think that he didn't honor the temple. Why? Because Jesus knew that the temple really was still at this time it was his father's house. That's what he calls it. When he why does he cleanse the temple? Because they had made his house which was supposed to be called a house of prayer into a robber's den, a den of thieves. The temple truly was his father's house. The veil of the temple was not yet torn. Judgment on the, system, on the system had not yet taken place. He had to fulfill the whole law. The temple would soon be desolate, but it wasn't yet. His actions were likely to be misinterpreted, and it would have led to more problems sooner. And he was trying to fulfill his mission. His time was not yet. The time of his crucifixion wasn't yet, and he didn't want to hasten it. Expediency. So when Christians acknowledge that at least most taxation is theft. You ever heard that mantra? It's actually true. Most of it is theft. At least most of it. This doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to go out resisting the IRS. I don't want to do that. They just hired 87,000 agents and they're required to have guns. Guys, we're going to get shot. And only, only lesser magistrates are supposed to oppose greater magistrates anyway, according to the Bible. You can't make a case for individual resistance. It's not in the Bible. Much less does it call for a violent revolution. Christians are not violent revolutionaries, but we are gradual culture builders. We can speak a moral vision toward an ideal while still functioning in a less than ideal world as long as we don't sin in doing so. By submitting to the tax, Jesus illustrated a principle that the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans and 1 Corinthians. Some things have no inherent moral bearing. It's not wrong to do it. and You can do it or not do it. And you're, not, you're not sinning by doing it. And wisdom might say that we go ahead and do something that's not sinful, even though it's not obligatory on us, in order not to be an offense. Paul writes extensively about the example of meat sacrificed to idols. Is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Yeah, but if I eat it and it offend my brother... And I won't eat it. His position is that there's nothing inherently wrong with buying and eating meat that is offered to idols in pagan worship. Charging a tax can be wrong and should be spoken against while paying the tax is not sinful and might be the wise thing to do. I can speak against it and pay it anyway. Jesus chose to pay the tax even though the tax had no claim on him. There's no hypocrisy in speaking against a tax but choosing to pay it anyway. It's okay to knowingly be defrauded, but wisdom might deem that we endure it without fighting. And it's okay to speak against those who would defraud others on a massive scale. It's not only okay, people are suffering because of this unjust taxation. It's going to cause the collapse of a whole society and to be silent is violence against the whole future generations of people that are coming after us. So we can speak against it, disciple people before they finally understand it, Bring the nation to repentance and then God give us the leaders that we deserve that will repeal these unjust taxes. You think God can do that? Do you think God can do that? This problem's too big. No, 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 no. God can do that? Yeah. Nothing can be impossible for us. We've shut up and give up because we don't have enough faith in God. 
because of the littleness of our faith. For the same reason that the disciples couldn't cast the demon out of the little boy. Faith wasn't big enough. But if it's even as a grain of mustard seed, it'll grow. And as it grows, you can move mountains. We can win down here. Nothing is impossible for the church. Guys, it might not be in our lifetime. It might be in our children's lifetime or our children's children's lifetime. But we cast a moral vision. This is the way things ought to be. And we say it and we speak it. We make sure they understand it. Whether they get to enjoy it or not, we speak it. And then God brings it about. Gradually. Over time. Christians live in light of eternity so we can afford to be patient. We can wait, can't we? Notice here though, Jesus' instruction to Peter suggests that though they're willing to pay the lack, uh, pay, even though they're willing to pay the money, they lack the necessary funds. Whatever would they do? When Jesus wasn't nervous about it. Look where Jesus' confidence is. He don't think, how are we going to come up with the money? I'm fretting. No, no. So that we don't defend them, his solution is to go to the sea and throw a hook in the water and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you're going to find a shekel. Take it and give it to them for you and for me. Jesus knows that God will take care of them. We can pay unjust taxes. Why? Because God will take care of us. Well, what will you do without that money that they're taking from us unjustly? We'll be just fine. Because our God owns the cattle of a thousand hills and Newsflash owns the hills too and He will take care of us. Right? If money problems are all the problems you have, then you ain't got no problems. Turn with me to Matthew 6, 25-33. This will be the last place we go and the last thing we do. Jesus is reverting to a theme He's already covered in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is this life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? Your who? Your heavenly Father. These people, they don't, don't owe the temple tax, but they're paying it anyway. Their heavenly Father will take care of them. We don't have to worry about it. Jesus believes what He says. Jesus lives out what He teaches. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to His life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? The smallness of your faith that he just rebuked them for. Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, those that aren't the sons of the kingdom, eagerly seek these things. For your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But what do we do? Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Just do the right thing and know God will take care of you. That's what it boils down to. So it was fine to pay the tax, even wise to pay the tax, to not be a stumbling block, even though he didn't know it. And he was able to do that because his confidence was in the provision of an almighty Father God. 
What I'm teaching this morning is a lot different than the popular naive mantra, just pay your taxes, it's the law, and invoking a tortured reading of Romans 13. Jesus' response is not anything close to the contemporary justification of taxation. The very fact that it was and remained a controversial talking point shows the complex nature of the situation. What does seem clear is that Jesus was rolling his eyes the whole time. Yeah, they're in the position to demand people's possessions, Peter. We don't really owe it, but oh well, it's just money. Pay them. Pay them. Whether Christians choose to pay taxes or not is an ethical choice they have to make. Depending on the context, conscience, and another of other, a number of other variables, if somebody commits a crime against me, let's say they steal my car, I've got a lot of options. I can do nothing. I can try to stop them. I can call the police. I can steal my neighbor's car so I can replace it. Uh, I, I mean, but it does no good to legitimize the theft on the basis of frequency, popularity, and poor exegesis. You say, well, if the government's stealing, it doesn't make it okay just because they're the government. We, don't, we can just let them steal it. We can try to speak against it. We can do a lot of things, and we have to say, what does the moment require? That's what we have to do. That's what we have to do. The government doesn't just get a free pass to commit wickedness just because it's the government. Resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. We just have to make sure that we lawfully resist in faith. I can't preach a whole sermon on what lawful resistance looks like, but that's a topic for another day. In the meantime, guys, we're never going to get it all right. Did you know that? We're never going to get it all right. We've compromised. We've been cowards. We've believed things that were a lie. We've defended things that were wrong as if they were right. We've stood up for thing, against things that were right and then found out that we were wrong. We've been all over the board, haven't we? Sometimes it's been out of ignorance and sometimes, guys, can you just admit it, you've been a coward? Did you know that when we say Jesus paid it all, we don't mean Jesus paid some of it? That we come back to the table and say, Jesus, I want to obey your law because it leads to covenantal blessing. It leads to blessing on me and my family, on whole churches, on whole societies of people. I want to obey your law, it's good, but it can never save me. But Jesus kept it perfectly and offered himself as my great high priest, as a sacrifice for my sins. And I claim that. I look to that. Now help me, God, to be more like Jesus and to change the world. It's going to be slow. It's going to be slow changing me. It's absolutely going to be slow changing the world. But God, give me the courage and the faith to believe it's possible. And help me go and combat the powers of darkness because you are the king. We recommit to that around the table every week. And that's what we're doing now. In Maynardville Fellowship, we extend the table to anybody that's a covenant member here or a member in good standing of another church and in regular attendance there with a recommendation from somebody in our body. We have a few people that have just completed the class that are going to be joining. They haven't done their membership uh, classes yet, but we're very excited to be adding them very, very soon. And that first time you take that bread and drink that little cup of juice, it's going to be sweet. I'm looking forward to hugging your neck after it's over with. Today we do have Joan Noble, a member in good standing at Irwin's Chapel. Um, I, I, I know the lady a little bit. She was a member of Gary's church, uh, uh, Gary Jessica's dad's church. Uh, she believes the gospel. We've talked with her. Uh, she right now is having to leave that church for a lot of reasons, but we want to extend the table to her this morning and pray for her that God will help her land where she will be discipled and trained up in righteousness. Let's prepare our hearts as we sing and receive the elements.